On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We're sitting in the back room congratulating ourselves, and the roadies from uh, The Faces came back and were just irate. He said, what the heck happened to the piano? Well, the first song we played was uh, Magic Man, and when we got done with Magic Man, the place just went nuts. And I get chills right now just thinking about it. And, you know, I went to myself, something's going on here. And I went, oh, and I, you know, I, I couldn't even talk after that because I completely spaced the whole thing out. And then, of course, tears came to my eyes and, you know, and I just said, thank you. And Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate weekly classic rock podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, I've got another fantastic show lined up for you this week with some really varied guests. I've got a rock and roll hall of famer here to tell his story, and a journalist as well who's written a new book about Pink Floyd, but with a twist. And of course, we'll hear from our good friend Tim Peacock from YouDiscoverMusic.com and Record Collector Magazine, who'll give us some more interesting news from the week in classic rock later on, so a packed episode as always. But... We'll start with our big-name guest. Now, long before the Wilson sisters, Anne and Nancy became involved, our guest, along with his friend and guitarist Roger Fisher, started a band that would go on to become a multi-million selling phenomenon with huge worldwide hits and end up in the Rock Hall of Fame. Steve Fossum was the founding member and bass player with the band Heart, and I caught up with him to chat about everything from the early days, the band's huge success, to him wishing things could have been different in the lead-up to imparting ways with the group, his feelings around the Rock Hall induction and the initial awkwardness of those rehearsals, and his new group along with former Heart drummer Michael DeRosier that continues to tour and enthrall fans today. It's a great chat with a really nice guy with some great stories to tell, like how the band managed to really upset Rod Stewart in the faces. You'll hear all about it. So please enjoy my chat with the wonderful Steve Fossen from Heart. When I was really young, it was in the, the 50s, right? The mid 50s. And all the cars had these uh, tube radios yeah. and they were in, had the six by nine oval speaker. And so the bass was just thumping, pounding, and sounded really good. And it always intrigued me, and I loved the vibration and everything. But my mom enrolled me in uh, uh, guitar lessons, and then I took the trumpet for a while. I kind of got out of music for a while. I was in a kind of rebellious, you know, <laughs> stage. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, one day, uh, we our family moved about five miles away from my childhood home to a, a neighboring uh, city. And I met some new friends, and I was on sitting on my bike, uh, I had taped my transistor radio to the handlebars of my bike and I was riding over to my friend's house and on came this brand new group from England called the Beatles. And the song was from me to you. And it shocked me so hard that I lost complete control of my thoughts and I forgot where I was and I almost went right into the ditch. <laughs> so it was uh, the Beatles were the ones that, I mean, of course I was super into Elvis and you know, Ricky Nelson and Roy Orbison and all the, you know, Everly Brothers, all the music from the fifties, I just loved and I, you know, gave me chills and everything. But when the Beatles came along, that's when I decided that's uh, what I wanted to do was uh, play bass like Paul McCartney. <laughs> so 
so then after that, you know, I, I got some uh, Meet the Beatles and I would listen to it all the time. And, and I would talk the bass to my parents and my mom and my sister. And I, oh, the bass is so cool. And bass, 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 you know. And then one day um, I was driving around with my dad and he said, hey, why don't we stop by the music store? We'll rent you a bass and we'll see what happens. So um, we rented a little uh, four string bass and a little amp. I got it home and they couldn't take it out of my hands for, you know, basically the rest of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, the lead up to, to Heart, obviously you're very famously um, founding member and everything of Heart. It was, it, the, the band kind of evolved in over many years. Can you give us a kind of simplistic intro to how Heart became Heart? Okay. My friend in high school who he got a guitar about the same time I got my bass and uh, it's Roger Fisher, the guitarist. Yep. We got our instruments when we were 15 and we spent a couple years learning our craft and playing in other bands and stuff but when we were 17 we were talking in my parents uh, house and we said let's start a band and i knew a singer he knew a drummer and we started this band and we called it the army and so it was a four-piece all guys we were the army for a year then we changed the name to white heart and then uh, a year after that we changed we shortened it to heart and ever since then we've uh, been playing around his heart the original uh, drummer and singer were, you know, left and we got, you know, replaced it with different people over the years. And one time we were, it was just the two of us again. And we put an ad in the paper. It was for a drummer, a singer and uh, a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And Ann Wilson was the singer that answered the, the ad. Yeah. And we all got together and we made a little band and for, and it was a cover band and we called it Hocus Pocus. And we, you know, <laughs> toured around uh, Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho, and uh, kind of caught up on all our uh, financial obligations and discovered that uh, Ann Wilson had as much ambition and drive as Roger Fisher and I did, so we stuck together. Fantastic. And then obviously it went from, from strength to strength from that point on. And, and you guys were, you, you made a big really in Canada, didn't you? You made the move to Canada and, and that was where you found your first success. You were getting big airplay on the radio. You signed your contract, you were doing gigs and everything up there, weren't you first? Yeah. Yeah. We, it kind of the opposite way though. We got up there, we, we made a club band. It took us, you know, six, eight months before we were one of the top club bands in the Vancouver area. And then we, then we, got hired all over British Columbia, you know, from Whitehorse to Dawson Creek to, you know, Kelowna, Penticton, all over the place. And pretty soon our, our music and our band caught to the attention of Mike Flicker and Mushroom Records. And so we, he did an audition. We did some demos and uh, the, those demos led to the signing of Heart to do Dreamboat Annie. And what an incredible debut album that turned out to be. And in some bands, they take maybe an album, two or three to, to cement their sound and, and what they're going to be and find success. But you guys did it right from the off. Now, that must have been the, the, the combination of the incredible musicians within the band and the songwriters as well. Yeah, well, what like when I said we were... We played all over the place. We played, uh, and back then, you, when you pulled into a club, you pulled in Monday or Tuesday night, set up your gear, and you played all week. And sometimes you played two weeks in a row in the same club. So we really had a chance to refine our set and refine, you know, and jam together a lot. So we knew each other musically, and we were very used to playing together and mm -hmm. confident about our playing. And then when we got into the studio, um, of course, we changed a few musicians. The the Canadian drummer and Canadian keyboard player, um, for some reason, Mike Flicker 
uh, wanted them to change. So we ended up getting Mike DeRosier and one of the studio musicians was Howard Lease. And we asked him to join our band. And so, and by then had Nancy had uh, joined her sister, Anne. And uh, so it was a complete band then. Mm -hmm. And, but we still had all that drive and ambition and knowledge and all that experience so that when we got in the studio, we knew that, you know, how to play together. And then one of the sayings that Mike Flicker came up with when we were um, recording the album was, uh, well, you better play this right and, you know, do this well because you're going to be listening to it for the rest of your life. And I went, <laughs> well, that'd be nice, but. <laughs> and how he truly turned out to be. But it ended up to be true. <laughs> and, you know, and to this day, when I hear like Crazy on You, Magic Man or Barracuda on radio or in a grocery store, you know, I always stop and take a little listen to what's going on because Flicker, by that time, he, he knew his studio really well. And he knew his thing and he knew how to, you know, make a good song. And, you know, he took the songs that we had come up with for Dreamboat Annie and made them into something, you know, and he was very meticulous and, and uh, everything worked out really nice. Absolutely. It certainly did. And the album went from strength to strength and the other albums went from strength to strength as well. And I just like to hear little stories, if, if you don't mind, Steve, as well. There was one in particular where you were playing at a club when you mentioned you, you turned up and you maybe did a week or a couple of weeks. But there was one club where you, you got fired from. But that kind of led to the biggest gig of your career at that stage with, yeah. with Rod Stewart in the faces, didn't it? Yeah, that's true. We we had finished Dreamboat Annie and uh, Mike uh, DeRosier and Howard Lee had joined the band Andy, and of course uh, Nancy and Ann and Roger and I were there too. We'd been there for a while, but so we uh, packed up our gear and we went to Calgary, Alberta and we played, I think it was called the Inferno. And uh, we set up, you know, on a Monday night or what Tuesday night or whatever. And we got this kind of a weird vibe from the owner and we were kind of, oh, well, this is weird. So we played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And uh, things just, uh, the owner was just not digging it at all. Didn't feel right. Yeah. So he came to us at the end of the night and said, listen, you guys aren't working out here. I'd like to get another band in here on the weekend. And we went, you know, and we were all like, oh, my God, that's the first time we've ever been let go of a gig ever. And, uh, you know, so we were all going like, oh, geez. And we were really embarrassed because that was one of the first gigs that uh, Mike DeRosier and Howard Lees had played with us. And they were going like, what the hell? I just joined this band and we get fired, you know, within a week. So uh, we're all, we hung our heads. And we're all going back to the hotel and everything. And we're kind of embarrassed to look at each other and talk and stuff. But uh, a little while later, we get this call for a meeting. And so we go over to uh, Ann and, and Mike, who Mike Fisher, who was Roger's older brother, and uh, said, well, we just got a call from the record company and they wanted to know if we could get out of our obligation to play this weekend. And we went and they went, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> we got fired and they said, OK, we have a chance to open up for, <laughs> excuse me, Rod Stewart and the faces in Montreal and Toronto you know we couldn't believe it and uh so we get to Montreal and you know we're all going hey let's get some crepes <laughs> I don't know why we thought that but so we got crepes that morning and we went to some uh, antique stores and you know walked around and stuff and then later on that afternoon we went to the stadium and uh, did started our sound check 
and we're all going like, oh, this is a big, you know, it's the Montreal, I guess, I don't know what it's called, the Forum or the Coliseum or whatever it was. It was their mm-hmm. big hockey rink, you know, yep. the 15, 16,000 people or whatever. But I think, oh, well, you know, we know what we're doing, so let's not worry about it too much. So we get it ready for the show and we get on stage and uh, they introduce us and, you know, we look out and it's, I mean, it's packed. Floors packed, the seats are packed, and you know, all the way up to the top of the the last row, everybody's mm-hmm. there. And we, yeah. so the first song we played was uh, Magic Man. And when we got done with Magic Man, the place just went nuts. And uh, and we were going, and I get chills right now just thinking about it. And I, you know, I went to myself, oh, oh wow, this is something's going on here. Yeah, what a feeling. Because <laughs> we didn't know how much airplay we were getting around, you know back there because we you know we were up from the west coast of canada and this was you know more eastern coast i think it was either the next day or the day after that we played toronto and you know same kind of reaction and and uh so you know we really owed a big debt of gratitude to the faces and rod stewart for allowing us to open up for them but at the same time we we were a good band and we knew what we were doing so we we knew that's that's what we wanted to yeah. do was impress big audiences. And I guess we did. It certainly did. And it went from strength to strength. But just in terms of the faces in Rod Street, did you get to hang out with the guys and get to chill with them? <laughs> Not really, no. Oh, uh, what happened was uh, during the sound check, uh, Roger Fisher had set, you know, you know that Rod Stewart's and the faces, they always had white yep. drums, white guitars, white piano, white amps and all, you know, everything was white. And Roger Fisher set his cigarette on uh, the white oh. piano. And uh, <laughs> so we got done with our set and we're, we're sitting in the back room congratulating ourselves. And the roadies from uh, the faces came back and were just irate. They said, what the heck happened to the piano? So uh, <laughs> it set Roger back a few bucks to get that panel refinished. It kind of ruined the relationship with with uh, the faces at that point. <laughs> That's a shame. That's a shame. Uh, just another touring story I'd like to hear about. One of one of your big tours, early tours to Europe, was with um, a Scottish band, Nazareth. Um, we had um, Pete Agnew, fellow bass player, on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Now, what do you remember of that? <laughs> well, those guys we did hang out with, and they were such characters it's really lovable people really i mean i mean they gave us such a great opportunity to open up from over there and we were so grateful for it and it was such a great tour and we learned so much when we were there and and uh, and of course they were you know they were known that their reputation for partying was is was well deserved <laughs> so they uh, they had a great time and we all had a great time and it was very uh, very wonderful experience fantastic times indeed fantastic times indeed now that fantastic times continued for for a number of years and a number of albums but then you left the band um in the early 80s didn't you um it wasn't through your choice unfortunately is that something that looking back you wish you could have worked out to carry on or do you think that obviously with the change in the direction you weren't as happy with the way the music was changing do you think it was right and proper that you left at that stage and that was probably the right thing that happened well you know yeah, I'm a kind of of two minds of that. I was a little bit uh, disillusioned with uh, mm-hmm. with the attitudes that were going on in the band, and uh, and I was going through some personal um, stuff that wasn't very pleasant. But it would have been nice to have uh, a sit down with a few of the members and 
discuss what's going on. And so I could have re refocused and uh, figured out why they were unhappy with what's going on. But, you know, I don't blame them for because I, I was, you know, I was distracted by my personal problems and I was distracted by the fact that uh, the uh, attitudes and, and direction of the band was, in, in my opinion, was uh, needed a little adjusting. And they probably didn't enjoy me, you know, griping about the direction and they thought they were doing the right thing. And I thought I was trying to contribute the right thing. So it just didn't work out. But it was kind of a relief in a way, and I was able to, you know, put my life back together. And it's good to hear. You know, I can't, I can't say that since I've left Heart that it's been horrible. It's never been a horrible time. And I've always, I've played music, and I've, you know, a couple years ago, or let's see, it was ten years ago now, or I met Summer, and she's a singer, and we started a band, and uh, that's been a very gratifying musical experience for me. And and I still play with Mike DeRozier. And uh, we have a very good band and we play the music of heart to this day. Mm -hmm. And we play it uh, in a way that uh, we try to recreate the nostalgia, which means we try to copy the songs perfectly so that when people hear them, they harkens back to their when they heard it the first time yeah. and how they felt and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very happy with that. We have people at the end of our set come up to us with tears in their eyes saying thank you for doing that oh, for us. Fantastic. And you mentioned the band quite, quite kind of offhand there, but it's it's heart by heart that the band is called, isn't it? Yes, heart by heart, yes. And that uh, was, a, you know, Summer and I, we, we were a duo together at first, just uh, the two of us, me playing bass and her singing, and we did some, you know, dinner parties with friends, and uh, mm -hmm. we got hired to do bistros and you know jam nights and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, got to the point where we felt like we wanted to expand out a little bit. So we hired uh, Mike DeRozier on drums and we got Randy Hansen, who's a Hendrix artist, to play guitar. And then we started uh, playing around as, you know, a heart spinoff band is what you actually would want to call it. But And people seemed to love it. So we just kept it going. And when we were a duo, we were trying to come up with a name. And because Summer and I were in love, and we were playing together, it was like heart by heart. And uh, it was the two of us uh, blending our hearts together to make music together, so. And I mean, it's a catchy name and it worked out, so we are still having a great time. We get, now that the uh, the virus is, uh, and vaccines are starting to uh, take effect, we're getting calls every day for more gigs all around America now, so Fantastic. we're happy about that. We can start getting back to normal life again. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Um, now, one thing we haven't touched on yet is, um, is 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 the big thing, the elephant in the room, the fact that you are a rock and roll hall of famer. Now, um, I know it was the second attempt, wasn't it? There was, a, there was an uproar that you didn't get in the first time you were nominated, and that was despite the fact that it took a while for them to nominate you. But when you finally got in, 2013, can you remember that moment when you got, uh, I'm guessing it was a phone call, somebody picked up the, fo the phone and called you and said, look, Steve, that's it, you're in. You're a hall of famer. Can you remember that moment? Well, okay, let's digress a little bit. The first year, I was so totally focused on that Hall of Fame thing that I was just like, I could not sleep. <laughs> I was nervous. I was uptight. I could, you know, it was horrible. And every day I would check the numbers and I was all just, oh, you know, just really nervous about the whole thing. And then, of course, that year we didn't make it. And I, you know, I thought, oh, geez, you know, but it was nice to be 
nominated, you know? And so we lived the, the rest of the year and I calmed down and I got some sleep and got back into uh, normal life. And, <laughs> and uh, we got the call, um, you know, I think they called in September or something, said, you're nominated again. And this time I went, okay, good. And I didn't pay attention to the numbers. I didn't pay, you know, I'd gone with my life as, as normal. I didn't really think about it. And as a matter of fact, downstairs, uh, futzing around with my bass and uh, some my amps, and I was trying to figure out some uh, some parts and stuff, and a phone call, and it was somebody, a really good friend of mine. He says, uh, you made it. I said, made what? <laughs> he says, you're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I went, oh, and I, you know, I, I couldn't even talk after that because I completely spaced the whole thing out. And so, and then of course, tears came to my eyes and, you know, and I just like, you <laughs> but <laughs> it was, it was very cool. Very cool. And then of course, when you're, when you're in, then all this stuff starts happening. You start getting communication with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they're telling you this and they're letting you know, this is going to happen here and that and this and that, you know, and then, uh, it's, so it was very, very exciting, the lead up to the induction ceremony, which was at the Nokia Theater in uh, Los Angeles on, uh, I believe it was April 18th, 2013. Yeah, that was the date. <laughs> <laughs> you remember it well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was very cool. Very cool indeed. So so what was the feeling like then, obviously, getting back with the band? Because you performed as well on the night, and now that's the first time in many years that the, the band had got back together. It's a cliche, but the band had got back together. I mean, how did that feel? Was that a bit nerve-wracking to, to, to get back together, or was it kind of one of those well, old friends sort of? There, it's, there was two things going on. And uh, so what happened was, uh, you know, there's all this negotiation about who's going to play on what song. And, you know, Anne, I think, decided that we'd, play on crazy on you and then she would have her current version of heart play barracuda so we were kind of trying to convince them Anne and nancy that uh well because mike derosier and roger fisher are co-writers of barracuda mm-hmm. it seemed like it would have been very you know apropos for them and us all of us to play and we're the you know we're the musicians that on the record that you know is so popular but they never, they never budged on that. But anyway, so they called this rehearsal the day before the induction ceremony. It was a, at a private location in uh, Los Angeles. And we were given specific instructions. Okay, so it's just bring your guitar or your bass and your drumsticks. And it's going to be a very private rehearsal. So we don't want, you can't bring your wife or your girlfriend or, you know. So we get there and both have their own complete entourage. <laughs> kids managers friends dogs everything and so we're just these guys that are just there with nothing and they're and they have their whole support apparatus with them anyway so so we you know we futz around with the gear and blah 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 and finally we get to play together and bam we start off uh, crazy on you and if someone would have had a recording device there and recorded that it was from first note to the last note, bam, right on through. And I think we played it three or four more times and we said, okay, I think we're ready. And that was it. It was like, we never left. It was, it was very great. And then uh, the night we played it on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it went off without a hitch. And uh, I remember Jan Wenner was sitting kind of 
right in front of me and he had this biggest smile on his face seeing Hart back on stage all together again. It was so great, so gratifying. Fantastic. And what else do you remember of the night then? Because it must be such a... Uh, or inspiring, maybe, um, I don't know, it's, it's incredible to, to see, I think it was Chris Cornell that inducted you, wasn't it? And then you're hearing all about the band and you're hearing what you've achieved and you've seen what you've done and everyone's there cheering. I mean, that must be an incredible experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it 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 really is. And, you know, um, before we were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we were all, like, I would think like, geez, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall didn't even exist when, when I started playing. <laughs> <laughs> and then it had been all these years and, and there'd been no mention of heart whatsoever after we were eligible. And I thought, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. It'd be nice. But uh, and the rock and roll fame obviously has a lot of detractors because their favorite band is hasn't been nominated, hasn't been inducted. And and so they poo poo all the, you know, a lot of the acts that get yeah. nominated and inducted. And then but. You know, and I was kind of in that vein a little bit too. But once, <laughs> once you you're inducted, and it, hey, rock and roll hall of fame, all right. But um, a few months after we were inducted, um, I went there uh, with a with a friend of mine who, who who was not a musician or anything, but he was going there, and he was going to be in Cleveland. He says, "Hey, why don't you come, and we'll just we'll both go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame." And so I got to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, Shelby Morrison, artist relations. I mean, she's super took care of us. And, you know, we got a tour, right? We, we went right from on the street, right into the vault. Mm -hmm. And the vault happened to have uh, John Lennon's Rick and Black Rickenbacker wow. sitting on the table and his uh, blonde um, 335 sitting over here in a case and she says oh yeah we just got those in from yoko she's loaning them to the, to the rock hall for a while like, okay and i said can i touch it and they said well you here put a glove on you know so but yeah i mean and the, the rock and roll hall of fame the it's wonderful to see and wonderful that to be a part of so and the people are so nice and they're so dedicated that you know i just love it and uh last year we uh summer and i were invited to participate in the uh, induction uh, ceremony because uh whitney who was uh summer's favorite singer when she was a kid was being inducted so we definitely made plans to go to that one and then when shelby heard about it she says oh, okay we're, you're gonna come and and you're gonna you're, we're gonna put you at a table with Mary Wilson, and you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And, and then, of course, it was canceled because of COVID. And then now Mary has unfortunately passed away. We're hoping to go this year and uh, hope, hopefully it takes place. It's Hopefully it does. Hopefully it does. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Steve. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the Vintage Rock Pod and speaking with us. Oh, me too. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm fascinated with Europe and, and uh, England and Scotland. <laughs> Ireland, uh, we're, you know, uh, Summer and I, we we love the European beers and uh, good, you know, Alan White, you know who he is, yeah, 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 drummer for Yes. Anyway, he's a good friend of ours, and we we all like to tip a couple back every once in a while and oh, talk about the old days. Sounds brilliant. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The brilliant Steve Fossen there. It was really great to catch up with him and hear his stories, wasn't it? Now, if you want to check out his new band and all the info around that, the tour dates, merch, all that sort of stuff, then look for heartsbyheart.com. 
Now it's that time of the show where I give you my song recommendations, my personal favourite tracks, remember? Obviously, for this week, the band Heart. There's an awful lot of songs that could be mentioned from their rockier late 70s stuff to the more commercial, kind of poppier stuff of the late 80s and 90s, which includes some great tracks, to be fair. So here we go, the top five Heart songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from the band's eighth album, 1985 self-titled Offering. This one's an uplifting, upbeat track with a defiant chorus. At number five is Never. For my choice at number four, we're going back to the debut album and the group's first top ten hit in the US, peaking at number nine in 1976. I love the album version with its soaring guitar solo in the middle as well. At number four is Magic Man. At three is a song from the Bad Animals album and is actually a cover that not many people here in the UK realise, but they really made it their own. They went to number one for three weeks in the US with this track in 1987. It's an epic power ballad, one of the decade's defining tracks. And number three is Alone. For number two, it's a trip to the second album, Little Queen, in 1977. It's an iconic track that VH1 voted in the top 50 hard rock tracks of all time. The angry lyrics, the angry riff, all adds to the power and beauty of the song. And number two is Barracuda. And at number one is the defining song for me, opening with the folksy acoustic Nancy guitar before the powerful guitar kicks in. The live versions you can watch on YouTube are well worth checking out. The number one song from Heart, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is the fantastic Crazy On You. Those are my thoughts then, the best five heart songs. I'm sure you'll probably have your own thoughts. There's plenty of early tracks I could have picked, like Heartless and Dog and Butterfly. And there's the more commercial hits as well, like These Dreams, What About Love, or All I Want to Do Is Make Love To You. Let me know your top five songs. Where do you agree or disagree with my list? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Now, last week's top five focus tracks seemed to be widely agreed with, to be fair, which makes a change. Although Joseph Van Den Bill and Craig Wills both messaged saying that Harem Scarum should have been on the list, which is a good shout to be fair. While John Roston messaged saying, Thank you for including All Hens on Deck, one of my favourite songs that doesn't get enough attention. I totally agree with you there. So there you go. Also, at this point, don't forget you can become a Vintage Rock Pod VRP VIP. All you need to do is sign up on the form on the website vintagerockpod.com and you'll be part of the cool gang. You'll find out first who's going to be on future episodes and get the chance to put your very own question to those future guests too. There'll also be giveaways and various other information on there too. It's completely free. Just head to vintagerockpod.com and fill in the form that's on the very first page. Right, we have another interview for you now, and there's a new Pink Floyd book out. Now, many, many books are constantly released about bands. A lot of them are biographical, telling the group's history, that sort of thing. But this new one I spotted last week was something a little different. It's called Lost Souls, and the artwork is a brilliant picture of two people with goldfish bowls for heads. Obvious nod to wish you were here for Floyd fans there. Uh, it's a fictional journey through 50 years of, point of Pink Floyd, although it's created using actual facts and actual interviews. So factional is probably the best way to describe it. I got a copy of the book and it hooked me in with the narrative, so I caught up with the author Edwin Amelan to learn more about it. Edwin, let's take us right back to the start then. I mean, where did the idea for this style of book come from? Because it's not just a straightforward story of Pink Floyd, is it? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it goes back a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least seven to eight years ago, I've been asked by a Dutch publisher to write a, a biography about Pink Floyd for a Dutch uh, readership. Uh, and that uh, made me think if that was actually worthwhile doing because uh, the facts, uh, figures, the history of uh, Pink Floyd is very well documented 
I uh, read a couple of books and um, I wasn't certain if I could add anything from a Dutch perspective. Um, as a music journalist, I've been uh, interviewing these uh, guys uh, uh, quite a lot and uh, collected a lot of information, and a lot of uh, press clippings uh, over those years. Um, but I thought, well, I have to do something with it. But from a new perspective, I wanted to give it a new angle. So I started thinking how to combine facts and fi fiction. Uh, so I uh, started off doing a couple of years of uh, research, uh, collecting a lot of quotes from all different type of sources, from uh, press clippings, videos, mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes material, all sorts of stuff. Uh, ask a lot of friends and colleagues about the, their experiences with Pink Floyd. And that I sort of collected in one big file. And then I started thinking about uh, a fictional point of view, a fictional story of a young guy, a young fan who uh, bumps into Pink Floyd quite accidentally and then becomes intrigued with their music. Uh, there grows a special bump with the band in the early years. The main character develops into a music journalist, uh, actually start writing a book about the band. And then uh, the whole story evolves uh, from when he starts at the age of 17 until he is uh, 67. So the main thing is to not only document the story about Pink Floyd, but also to give a good uh, view of the development of the main character in person. It's sort of a coming of age story, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And you've written it in such a way that you do get emotionally invested in your character who's called Matt uh, and his journey mm -hmm. as well, his personal journey along, along his life, basically. And then obviously with his interactions with Pink Floyd. But speaking about interactions with Pink Floyd, you mentioned it there. You are a journalist and you've worked in, in rock papers and, and magazines and things for a long time. You've met and interviewed the members of Pink Floyd many times, haven't you? Yeah. For example, I've been through the uh, uh, studio uh, houseboat of uh, David Gilmour which is moored at the, the, the banks of the River Thames. The boat is called Astoria. Mm -hmm. I was there to interview David Gilmore about his solo project, about his live album, which he released many years ago. Yeah. Uh, I've been to the Abbey Road studios. I met Roger Waters in a, a Porsche hotel room somewhere in London. <laughs> uh, I've been to the Wall uh, live show in Berlin. So uh, off and on, I've been uh, close to uh, both the events, uh, which I describe in the book, but also done some interviews. Absolutely. So do you almost put yourself in the position of Matt? Is, is Matt a character you would like to have been yourself? Uh, for some parts, yes. But I, <laughs> I, I, as a journalist, I always try to keep a certain distance from, uh, from musicians. Yeah. There's only one band uh, which I've been uh, more closely involved in, that's a Canadian rock band called Saga. Uh, and uh, I've been uh, following those guys from 81 till now. They just released a very interesting new album uh, recently called Symmetry. I can actually call those guys my, my good friends. And, uh, and Pink Floyd is a very uh, insular band. Uh, they keep fans and uh, journalists away from what happens actually behind the scenes. So that was another uh, goal to give uh, a more intimate and more personal and uh, subjective view on what might have happened behind the scenes. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's important to express that not everything is true uh, and it's uh, for most part it's, it's, it's fiction. Absolutely, and you said, I think you, you remarked on it quite well when you said that um, it's, it's fiction 
but it's kind of with facts involved. So factional is probably the best way of putting it. And I really like the way you, you, that comes across because it really does make a lot of sense. Now, Pink Floyd fans will love the fact and music fans in general will love the fact that it, it really does tell the story of the band, doesn't it, over the years. And there's lots of intricacies we get to hear about um, the, the personalities within the group, what happened behind the scenes. And OK, as you say, some of it may be fictional in terms of what, what developed. But you had to go through, as you said, many press cuttings and, and videos and watching these and piece it all together like a jigsaw i mean did you have fun doing that yeah it was fun but it was also a challenge i know how to work with details and how to write a good dutch interview Mm -hmm. and thank god i had a a good english native speaking editor to make some sense out of it all (laughs) Uh, the fun part was to combine the storyline with the obvious pink floyd storyline and to combine those two together and make a, a decent story out of it. Absolutely, and it draws in other areas and aspects as well from the time that it's set in. So there's mentions of the Beatles in Abbey Road, and then there's mentions of uh, rumours coming out, and Matt was singing along to one of the songs and thinking Stevie was singing to him. Then they talk about, don't forget, I've introduced you to this new guy, Prince. And do you know what I mean? It, it, the book does set you in the scene and the, the era of which Pink Floyd are going through as well, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, and, and the main character starts off as a pretty a naive kind of guy, a teenager, a fan. And at the end, he's more like a senior professional reflecting on life, reflecting on stardom. The development of that I found very interesting as well because I wasn't used to writing fiction. And I learned a lot about that. And just in terms of anything else you'd like to add about the book, I mean, is it, it's not the first book you've written, but it's, it's a very unique style. So what would you like to say to, to the listener now? Uh, well, just give it a try. Uh, if, if you were a diehard Pink Floyd fan, you probably won't read a lot of new details about the band because what I just said, everything is very, very well documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I was writing it with a movie in mind. So uh, that's one of the best compliments people can give me is that it reads like watching a movie that you see the characters uh, develop, like you've been drawn into the story uh, that you can uh, relate to the main character in in a certain sense, like you just said. And that's just the best advice uh, I can give. I I don't know if the, the combination of facts and fiction is for everybody, but just give it a try. And I'm very curious uh, what, what people think of it. Uh, the first reviews are coming in and most of them are very positive. Absolutely. My, my, my reaction, I told you before, was that I really enjoyed um, not just the, the story of Pink Floyd, but the story of the character as well. I kind of found myself being emotionally invested in, in how he was getting on. And obviously he has his ups and downs in life, as everybody does. And, and we get to live through him and, and yeah. things like that. So, yeah, I really enjoyed not just the Pink Floyd, but the story that you created around him. And it might be also a good moment to rediscover uh, Pink Floyd again. If you haven't been listening to them for a while, yes. uh, start with the really, really old uh, Sid Barrett stuff uh, and listen how the music developed uh, and ended up uh, with uh, the Endless uh, River at the end. I actually made a Spotify playing uh, list uh, to combine with the book. So every song okay. that is being mentioned is in the Spotify uh, list as, as well. So that might enhance the atmosphere a little. Absolutely. And what's that Spotify playlist called? Uh, it's, it's, it has the same bo- the title as the book. So it's the Lost Souls uh, Spotify list. Okay. Have a look and have a listen. I, I certainly will. I enjoyed it. I did actually do that. I had um, Spotify playing while I was reading the book at the same time. It was nice to go and listen to some of the old stuff that I've not mm-hmm. heard in a long time, actually, which is really, really good. Um, set the controls of the heart of the sun and, and careful of the axe and all that sort of stuff that I'd really, really not uh, listened to for a while. So it was nice to, to dig it all back out. Um, in terms of getting the book then, um, it, I guess it's available on all the usual platforms, Amazon, that sort of thing, yeah? Uh, just Amazon for the time being. It will take at least a couple of more weeks before it 
becomes available through other channels as well. Uh, online channels, I don't think you will find it in the bookstore just yet. But if you're interested, uh, just have a look on Amazon and for the Dutch readership, uh, it will be available on a site called bold.com as well. But uh, for you guys, uh, Amazon is the, the main uh, channel to get it. Amazon, absolutely brilliant. It's called Lost Souls, A Fictional Journey Through 50 Years of Pink Floyd. Thank you very much to the author for joining me, Edwin Amelan. Thank you, Paul. So there you go. I recommend you checking it out. Lost Souls, a fictional journey through 50 years of Pink Floyd, written by a man who's met and interviewed the main guys in the band on multiple occasions and certainly done his research. And another man who always does his research is our good friend, author and journalist himself for Record Collector magazine and Universal Music's YouDiscoverMusic.com, Tim Peacock, who brings us the latest news in classic rock. And as always, we're going to find out what's happening in this week's classic rock world with our good friend, Tim Peacock. How are you, Tim? Hi, Paul. Good to be here. I'm fine, thanks. Good stuff, good stuff. And I'm looking forward to seeing what stories you've got lined up for us this week. Okay. Well, suitably quirky stories, Paul. Although, at least I'm glad to say there's no deaths this week. They're all reasonably upbeat sort of stories anyway. So, um, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, first off, let's start with one that I'm always trying to come up with ideas for the listeners for classic, you know, classic rock stories that people can be doing things to deal with while they're in lockdown to help with the boredom that we're all having to deal with at the moment. Um, so the first one tonight is actually relating to, um, well, a street, an on-demand stream. Prior to all of this lunacy starting last year, of course, one of the things that happened in the literally the weeks before it was that Mick Fleetwood held a um, tribute concert for the great Peter Green, which I think was at the Palladium, and it was an absolutely star-studded affair, as you probably remember. He had everyone from Steve Steve Tyler to Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top uh, and Dave Gilmore from Pink Floyd and so forth. And um, there's going to be the recording of that, the film of it is going to be available to stream online in demand. It was originally, obviously, it was going to be a cinema release, but of course, the way that these things have gone now, um, that's not going to happen. Full scale cinema releases aren't going to happen. So uh, from April the 24th, um, that's 8 p.m. GMT on April the 24th. For five days, the Mick Fleetwood and Friends concert in celebration for Peter Green is going to be available. Uh, and then, though it's going to be released via physical formats on April the 30th, so DVDs, Blu-rays, etc. Mick Fleetwood said, uh, Peter Green taught me two unassailable lessons when it came to music. Less is more, and don't worry about being clever. He played from his heart, which is why so many people, musicians and appreciators alike, gathered in London to pay tribute to him, all of us together bearing witness to the magic of Peter's music. The film, um, it's available online at a website called nugs.net, that's N-U-G-S.net, in HD and 4K streaming video with Dolby Atmos sound, if you have the facility for those things. So, yeah, April 24th. Very posh. Absolutely, (laughs) nothing but the best. April 24th, uh, it's available on demand, and then from April 30th, it'll be on physical formats in the shops, Amazon, everywhere else. So, could be one to look forward to. Good stuff. Right, so from uh, Peter Green and Fleetwood, Mac, what are we going to next? Okay, well, we've another Black Sabbath story. We had a Black Sabbath story last week, but this one's not about benches. It's about uh, this is about a book, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, Giza Butler is currently writing his autobiography at the moment, which sounds pretty interesting, actually, because um, don't have a title for this, but he he did I he, can imagine so. Yeah, he did an inter- an interview with Cleveland.com last week. Uh, it's been on most of the newsreels, and he apparently what set him in off with this is uh, he said. 
before his parents died, he wished he'd asked them lots of questions about their lives. And he said this got him thinking, apparently. So I started writing a memoir for my grandkids to read, and it's been fun going through, through stuff. Of course, a lot of people wouldn't have the past that Giza has to, to draw upon, but <laughs> it does sound like it'd be good. Um, I mean, to be fair, also Giza, apart from being an amazing bass player, he was actually primary lyricist, really. I mean, um, yeah. a lot of those great lyrics, I mean, you're thinking the songs on those first three albums, I mean, People thought that they wrote about, you know, just Satanism and stuff. But I mean, there's things like Hand of Boom, which was anti-drugs. It's about uh, heroin, it's about Viet the Vietnam War, and of course, things like war pigs. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of issues, nuclear war, thinking of children of the grave and so forth. And a lot of that was was geezer. So I think that would be that would be an interesting read, certainly. He doesn't uh, give a date when it's going to happen, but he's definitely well in with it at the moment, it seems. He's well underway with the writing of it. He did um, explain a couple more things in, in the interview about Sabbath. He also said um, the one small downside at the end of the interview is he did scotch the possibility of them playing it together again. I mean, we all know that they went out with the end four years ago, but he's he's, he's actually said, we went on out on top, why ruin it? Um, he said... I, I don't think we could tour, uh, last a tour these days. Um, Tony is in remission with his cancer, but he doesn't want to go out on the road. God knows what Ozzy's doing. Um, <laughs> he's been waiting to do his final tour for the past three years. And as we know, Ozzy's not been terribly well. And Geezer also says, I don't know if he'll ever go out on the road again. So no Sabbath, it's definitely in for us. But I mean, Sabbath, I mean, it's a huge industry itself. There'll um, no doubt be more, more um, there'll be more reissues. And like this book, I think, does sound pretty interesting. I don't have a name at the moment, Paul, but it is underway, and it's definitely one that's going on my list. I want to read what he has to say. Absolutely, yeah, it'll be fascinating, <laughs> won't it? <laughs> so what else have you got for us, Tim? Okay, and finally tonight, Paul, um, we were talking about, we just mentioned, Giza was saying about Sabbath not playing there. I, I had tickets for uh, the Who's tour, which was had been put off, and then they cancelled it again. So... Unfortunately, if you're a Who fan, it's a bit frustrating at the moment. However, some good news on the Who front, uh, at least archival news anyway, there's going to be a super deluxe edition of the band's The Who Sell Out album is coming out on April the 23rd, which sounds like it'd be, it'd be pretty good altogether. There's actually, on Friday, they released um, a digital EP as a kind of a taster, and they actually ran together. That album, famously, I don't know if you know the Who sell out too well, but there's all lots of little advertising jingles in between the songs. That was one of the ways, of course, the cover's famous. It's the one with Roger Daltrey sitting in the bath full of beans and Townsend with the huge uh, deodorant under his arm. So everyone, in, in, and it's kind of about consumerism at the time. Uh, but anyway, the new version of the album is coming out and it sounds pretty cool because there's going to be 112 tracks on it altogether, 46 of which are unissued. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it does sound like it will be the probably the, well, the definitive edition of that album, certainly probably the final <laughs> word on the, the Who sellout. Um, I mean, as to what your favourite Who album is, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. This would be a, a contender, as would certainly, I guess, Tommy or, well, for me, probably Who's Next is probably my fa favourite Who album. But, I mean, sure, the listeners would have plenty to say about the Who. Uh, but this one does sound great. Now, I, I don't have the details on what the tracks are. I mean, whether these are, I imagine they'll probably be demos, uh, maybe alternate versions, and there could be some live stuff in there. 
Um, but it does sound pretty good. I must say that one does sound tasty. Anyway, 23rd of April is the day to put in the diary for that one. Good stuff indeed. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tim. Another fascinating uh, set of stories for us this week, and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. You're very welcome, Paul. Sweet to you again next week. And a big thanks to Tim as always, and a big thanks to you as well for listening. I really do appreciate your support. We've been listened to in 73 different countries around the world now. It's truly remarkable. If this is the first time you have listened, then please hit the follow or subscribe button to make sure you don't miss these future episodes. They come out every Monday morning with big name interviews, news and nostalgia to fill all your classic rock needs. Give us a follow or a like on social media too. You can see all the sort of stuff that we put up there, all the interviews. You can also see some of the videos we put up on YouTube as well, well worth searching. And don't forget to sign up to become a VRP VIP at VintageRockPod.com. Tell your friends, family, neighbours, colleagues, anyone really to get listening and join in. Until episode 22 then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.